One's model of reality always converges at some point between the known and unknown. And if the universe is truly expanding, one might infer the distance between these two entities grows ever larger. Welcome to the Certain Uncertainty Podcast, a podcast aimed at pulling these entities closer together to derive practicality from complexity, from a place where the known touches the unknown. In this episode, we've compiled all of the greatest moments from our previous episodes, so you can get all of our deepest insights in bite-sized forms. This is also our last episode of Season 1 of Cup. In Season 2, we will begin to welcome on guests to explore more of the unknown. Without further ado, I present Episode 17, the Season 1 Montage. With this new environment of the digital world, what is actually real there? As in, what is real in terms of value? What is real in terms of relationships? What is real in terms of just our own behavior and how we basically align the digital behavior to our own lives behavior? Digital atmosphere is that people are going to be interacting with more and more complex behavioral systems that are actually existing outside of, of normal human behavior. In other words, they're algorithms, they're AIs, they're bots. And, and subtly over time, our, our value of these algorithms and these bots become the real thing because we are associated associated with them so much more. And most of our transactions are underhanded by these, these algorithms and in, in these um, non-player characters. We get to that level where a digital team has value, but there's no actual physical entity operating that team. And now you look at this entity as a whole and you can say, okay, we're worth, you know, $6 million because of our performance. People like to come watch. Does it make it less fun to watch knowing that a well-coded AI that has certain parameters of randomness built within it are performing rather than a physical human that you can relate with. All of a sudden, you know, these bots are making the biggest uh, strides in the leaderboards, right? And, and all of a sudden they're the, they're the top game, top players, but no one knows that they're bots. How then does that change the impression of that, that bot itself? Is it real? Is that skill real? I think so. Or does it become less real once we acknowledge the fact that it's a bot? Okay, now you have an upgraded bioprosthetic, but okay, it probably won't be accepted at first. But then after a while, you know, as it becomes more culturally accepted, so now people just normal, normally they're like, you know, I had a bad shoulder, it got it replaced, I feel great. But now I can throw a ball all those times and it never wears out. So then will we slowly transvert, transform ourselves you know, joint by joint into becoming kind of like quote unquote cyborgs. You know, people are going to spending their entire life trying to augment themselves according to the, the doctrines of the automations in the digital world that they have learned. And the more you've spent in the digital world, the more, I guess, inspiration you can have into how you can potentially augment yourself to do these more logical operations in sequence. Mm -hmm. And so these are all decisions that are being automated underneath you. And if you don't, if you're not exposed to the data that you're collected, that's being collected from you, you won't understand why you're like, oh yeah, I do like this. Why do you like this? Who are you? Right. Mm -hmm. And then this mental health cycle starts to trickle down because now you don't know anything about yourself. You don't know. I mean, you know, this is the whole process. Every day you wake up, it's like, who, who am I today? Cause I mean, every day is a new waking consciousness. My, my, uh, pessimistic fear of like the, the metaverse and the theory behind it is that it will make reality, our current reality, so boring and obsolete that we will never want to go back 
Because if you think about the level of customization and, and specificity that can happen to your world when you put on goggles versus my world when I put on goggles, imagine if you were to drive around in you know San Francisco and every single every single billboard building side had a specified ad to you. Everything was completely specified. And we're, we're looking at the exact same landscape. What, what really kind of struck us as we were going through this initial analysis is the, the concept, which was bizarrely confusing, as to trying to understand the rationale that they gave themselves for why they did what they did. And this applies to all people who, who enact malevolent um, ideas or actions is not necessarily asking like the why, because we can explain the why, but trying to understand the root of malevolence and how people or someone is capable of conceiving and carrying out these types of ideas and actions. Like what is the root of evil and malevolence? And Ecology, they, they build this model that is kind of segregated into three different categories. Uh, the first of which uh, to, might, may come to no surprise, it's narcissism, the idea that you are acting in a self-interesting way and that you are self-serving at all levels of the spectrum. Uh, the second one is uh, psychopathy. And, and psychopathy is, is a very, very challenging trait to really analyze as it's usually follows many different associated traits like intelligence or charming abilities. And, and it's a really hard thing to kind of tack onto because it takes many different forms. And, and the last one is a, a term probably no one has heard of, in, in, at least outside of psychology. Um, but the term is Machiavellianism. And Machiavellianism is a trait that is associated with cunningness, the ability to manipulate others. And, and when you combine it with narcissism, you actually come to a very interesting kind of intersection there. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to manipulate people for this self-serving purpose. And then you tie in the psychopathy. I didn't mention this before, but psychopathy is also associated usually with a lack of emotional responses that are in the community itself at that specific time. Right. If he had waited a year later, maybe someone else that had the exact opposite moral code as Hitler would have taken that space in the environment sure. as opposed to him. And, and then all this great doctrines may have come forward. Right. And it's like, you know, hypothetical. Right. But but maybe maybe that's that's the root of it all is that that the malevolence doesn't like as we were saying in, in the womb, it's like, you know, it's this baby like scheming like it's not yeah. doing this in the womb. Right. It's like, when does that scheming actually uh, develop? Is it through the influence of of the collective, the, the individuals that surround them and the, the void of the culture around them itself, right? Versus, you know, inside the individual, it's purely individually created and everything of malevolence is really generated internally. Is someone of genuine intent capable of outperforming in the, in the public opinion or even in an, an enclosed system a person who is capable and willing to fully deploy the abilities of deceit and manipulation and gaslighting. Because if you're the person receiving all of that, you're always on the defensive. You're always trying to deal with an unpredictable situation of someone who is actively deceitful. How can you win? Basically, two classes of individuals that are at the same level, the same class of individuals. They don't have any authority over one or one another, and they don't have any prior relationships with one another. And you say, okay, half of you are going to be prisoners, half of you are going to be guards. Let's see what happens. And what happens is the guards, because of that authority, because of that pocket they're filling of authority itself, they start enacting malevolence on the prisoners themselves, right? And that's the classic example as the guards start really fitting into their roles. And that just shows that 
Maybe malevolence doesn't exist in the individual. It exists in the environment that surrounds the individual. It comes down to what is the moral consistency of a society? And I think at that level, you can figure out when malevolent pockets begin to form, right? Whenever you find that the moral fabric with which a nation rests on is starting to be doubted at a very high level, or, or maybe the efficacy isn't, isn't appropriate for some portion of the population, you see turmoil in the moral fabric. And this moral fabric then generates all these little pockets given due, like, largely due to people's uh, feeling of, of isolation in their own morality. Time. Um, I wanted to bind these three terms here, and I think this is going to complete the full picture. The three terms, pity, shame, and guilt. And, and, and really, I don't even wanna, I'm not even going to go on exactly what they are um, in, in more depth. But basically what I want to say is that when there is moral inconsistency, or at least when there is the presence that, that the moral fabric of a society is changing, look for these three things. Pity, shame, and guilt. There's a high chance that the moral fabric is starting to corrupt and starting to, to crumble, and you're going to get these power vacuums that start to form. So look for the presence. Whenever there's a high level of pity, whenever there's a high level of shame, whenever there's a high level of guilt. Learn something, I think in order to fully have a comprehensive understanding of a topic or a subject or a technique, it's when you can relate it to something else. Before you learn something, before you take some core insight away from it. Um, and, and, and I guess we can address it by first just basically explaining what what it is that binds an experience together flavors of gum and i would assign different classes a flavor of gum so that when i was studying for organic chemistry i had winter blue and when i was studying for transport phenomena i had cinnamon mm -hmm. and while studying and doing that homework i would chew that flavor of gum and then during that specific exam i would chew that flavor of gum just to have one more layer of depth of association coming with the feelings that i had in that moment learning is simply maximizing the number of network associations. And I'm not necessarily totally in agreement with this, but let's, let's try to pick this apart. Learning, learning success is relative to the number of network associations, both within the topic sector and outside of the topic sector. Definitely. Well, I think one of the most important things that I've heard time and time again is that's why you're not supposed to study in bed. And even if you can help it, which got extremely more difficult in the past couple of years now that people are all working from their apartments and their homes, but they say you shouldn't even be working in your bedroom. Your, your bedroom and where you sleep and where you rest is not a place that your brain should associate with activity and communication and, and learning and studying. It needs to be for the best quality solely focused on that is the place of rest of peace. So imagine if an artist spent all of their time in a museum, they will never create right? They spend all their time viewing, analyzing, observing, you know, interpreting art in every form and every way. And if an artist spends all their time in a museum, they'll never get anything done. You need, you need to let your imagination breathe. And that's one of my favorite metaphors that I like to think about when analyzing the normal state versus an altered state of consciousness is if you were to take a kaleidoscope looking into your own mind in a normal state, it looks like a colorful jumble of, of random patterns and colors rather than when you achieve an altered state of consciousness. It is like looking at it with a telescope where you can now zoom in and identify and look at specific details or maybe observe new patterns. Or 
but the way I would perceive uh, altered state of consciousness is basically as a mask of you have this self, this person that personality traits, and you already have some elevated or minimized values of your own personality. And that these altered state of consciousness are, like you said before, kind of going to exasperate some of those elements of who you are. And so, you know, this is something to also keep in mind in the context, at least when orienting yourself socially, because if you're a heavily introverted person, well, that's something to keep aware of, right? Because you're going to be looking for traits that optimize extroversion, actually referencing a specific drug with this, which is MDMA. MDMA is something that stimulates the serotonergic more than it does the dopamine, but it still has that dopamine activity. And, it, and it's interesting because MDMA is one of the best ways to actually interact and build relationships while you're on the chemical. If you've ever taken MDMA, it's like you can talk to anyone. You can form a relationship with anyone. Why is that? Why is that? What is the altered state of consciousness that's produced from MDMA that allows you to think that way? And so that's kind of how I would use that as an example here to kind of optimize those different pathways from that quote is that nothing is free in any context whatsoever, whether it's different neurochemicals you're trying to enhance, whether it's different habits you're trying to bring into your life or different chemicals you're trying to um, take advantage of in order to achieve an ASC, nothing is free and everything comes at some sort of a price and the value of that price is wildly variant. You have to seriously ask yourself the question, what is it that I'm trying to escape from? Because if you're trying to escape from something, that likely means that there are goals that you've set for yourself that are unestablished or else you wouldn't feel the need to escape from them. And, and so maybe maybe the goal in the escapist mindset is an altered state of consciousness that, that makes them feel more present. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes the best way to continue having control is to give it up. Yeah. And that's the trickiest altered state of consciousness, uh, ASC, to reach, really. Because if you reach an ASC where you're constantly devolving your thoughts around control, 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 you forget in the, in the process what it is that you're controlling because you're focused on the method of control. Absolutely. So I thought that was a really interesting perspective and context that you used in describing how different substances and neurochemicals have acted as a way in which we upgrade our thoughtware. You consider or approach this upgraded mindset from where we were to where we are. The, the, first, the first realization is to at least acknowledge that you are going to be limited by some value of growth. You're not going to achieve some infinite growth. And it's to realize that you're playing a game that spans more than just your own individual lifespan. We're playing an evolutionary game that spans an infinite time. And it's up for us, really, to keep that, that trend going as, as we keep our species alive. And so that's, that's step one, is, is to realize that you can only make so much difference within a limited amount of time. Well, how long have we been using drugs in a society? Because like I said, this is a long time span. And if we're looking at a really long time span and we're looking at drugs specifically, well, we can identify that there maybe there's a big correlation between how long we've been using drugs and how much change humans have seen within their own psychology. And, you know, I mean, this is a really heavily debated topic as to when humans first started taking drugs for the purpose not of nutrition, but for the purpose of altering their psychology in a way that is harmonious with some tribal social entity. Mm, yeah, an altered state of consciousness is simply a contrast between your what you would define as a sober mindset or, or, or a 
non-drug mediated. And, and this is where it gets tough because look, you're, you're going to be eating food and that food will always influence your psychology. But because the food itself has some nutritional value to it, we're kind of eliminating those off as drugs. And so th I wouldn't say eating a sweet potato, for example, gives you that altered state of consciousness. It's not intense enough of a change in your psychology to actually recognize it as, as, a, as a psychotropic or a mind altering chemical perhaps. You know, when you look at the reasons you use alcohol, as you're saying, well, as you become addicted to alcohol, a, a big reason that alcohol is so popular is because it, it, it suppresses our fear responses and our amygdala. And it also suppresses our cognitive responses. And as you were saying, you know, sometimes we take these drugs to increase performance. Well, that's not true with alcohol. Alcohol is actually to numb the desire for increasing in performance. And uh, the more a nation or perhaps a society or culture becomes obsessed with the idea of performance, the more you can actually see that that society might become addicted to chemicals that kind of defocus the, the, the value of performing at a higher level, hence alcohol. Chemicals, like you mentioned in the in the psychedelic field, which are vastly coming into research and hospitals and, and new uh, organizations now, why are these becoming popular all of a sudden, or what is this renaissance that's happening um, within this field? The idea as far as the psychedelic renaissance basically comes from the idea that pharmaceutical in, in the modern world has failed us and giving us drugs that we can use to actually better ourselves. So the, the problem, right, lies, uh, you can look at the opioid market, for example, to identify where the problem really is. You give a bunch of people who are in pain a chemical that basically makes them forget about that pain, well, then they're not actually solving any of their problems, right? Because while they're on the drug, they're just forgetting about that pain. When they're not on the drug, the pain's going to come right back. And they're going to be like, well, how the hell do I get off this pain? Right? So you're not solving their, their ability to at least cope with some pain. Is if people were to read your book, and hopefully they do, what is the takeaway piece of advice or information or wisdom that you hope they depart with. Mm. Yeah. The, the key insight that I hope people think about when they're reading the book is you are only limited by your perceptions of the reality. Um, and I mean that not in a, in a day, like that doesn't, that doesn't mean, you know, jump off a cliff cause you can now believe you can fly. That doesn't, that's not what that means. It means that be aware that there are a lot of elements at play that constitute who you are and how you make decisions in your life. And that these are simply abstract perceptions that you've generated yourself. And that really I'm providing a tool set, in this case, a set of drugs that you can use to at least gain some awareness of those abstract, somewhat arbitrary, at least from an outside perspective, uh, uh, concepts that you, that you bind yourself to as, as principles for how you want to live your life. And so if really what guides us into these conversation how do we develop a framework for thinking and uh, we have basically two questions that we want to elaborate on today um, and they're pretty simple the first one is who are the certain uncertainty gurus and what is our methodology and the second what is applied philosophy which is something that we really use as our center backbone to construct these conversational dialogues and to push us into directions that might feel uncomfortable at first, but at least at some level, help us find and identify some utility from the chaos of <laughs> too much information, perhaps. So what is it about philosophy as a general whole that you find validating for the human experience? What's the point of generating these types of statements that we then use and try to validate throughout our own individual experiences that is promising? Because at some level, 
<laughs> a philosophy will always be proven wrong as we go through the future. And so what's the point of constantly coming up with things that are always going to be wrong? Is the actual striving, the, the obsession, is that something conscious? Is that something you can train yourself to be obsessed with? Or is it something that kind of boils down in your, your epitome of self that then manifests into your conscious domain? In other words, obsession with a specific set of philosophy or the desire to um, build some practical model out of philosophy, is that come down from the root of who we are? Or is it more of this conscious appeal that we've kind of arisen? Like, hey, it's great to be obsessed with something. Let's just pick one. Or is it really in, in, in our hearts? Like, okay, I'm obsessed with it. I have no idea why, but we're just going to keep you know, meandering down this, or not meandering, but, you know, sprinting perhaps. <laughs> no, I think it's definitely un what could you be versus what should you be? And I think that's a question a lot of people probably don't ask themselves and really try and ideate through to the answers because a lot of people have a framework from what they've seen around them and their parents and previous generations and their friends. And almost everybody has this idea of what should you be, you know, the family person, the career, sustaining a job to fulfill some goals. But there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with what could you be? And asking yourself this question and really going through this difficult process of trying to come to the answer and, and understand what your goal structures are, what your individual principles are and why they matter. When we ask the question, who are the modern day philosophers? you'll be confronted with a pretty puzzling question because it's like, well, who are they? I mean, like, and, and this is where it comes down to, are geniuses realized in the time in which they were alive? Or can a genius really only be realized in the time they're not alive? It, it's that it becomes a question of how long has the idea withstood the test of time? What is the classical sense of, of the philosophy in itself? And, and this is where it gets challenging because we could be surrounded by a bunch of people that someday some people could consider genius in their own right. And yet, why is it that we don't, why is it that we can't realize that? Is it because we need the empirical information to validate it? I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do we know a philosophical idea is great when it's created? Will there ever be a point in the future where we've discovered all the ideas of philosophy, all the philosophical notions of a society have been discovered? Or is it a purely infinite iterative process that only once new societies and communities have been created will we develop new philosophies for understanding that existence? Here's the questions. What is our definition of game theory? What is the role of instinct in shaping the landscape of decisions? How does personal decision-making fit into a rational compass? How does a culture's decisions influence the manifestation of war and economic trade wars? In, in most games that we play on a greater scale, it, re it requires two-way participation for this game to be successful, but not game theory. There is not a two-way intrinsic requirement for this game to happen. And I think that's really interesting. We're only one minimum one of the players must be partaking in the game for it to enact. Is the goal a 
individualistic game where the game centers and revolves around the individual's prosperity? Or is it to say, let's take a step back and it's actually the collective gain? I think these are the two different dichotomies that you can propose as to the common game theory that is being used by our society and many societies at large. And I think if you look at different governmental institutions, you can you can analyze the way they've enacted legislation depending on what type of game they're trying to actually play. And I, I heard these two term, terminologies uh, recently, but there's there's a contrast between what is called philia nikia, which is the love of victory, versus philia sophia, which is the love of wisdom. And I'd be curious to see how we could fit these two terms to describe really, really uh, bold brackets between human psyches and how those then shape the individual game versus the collective game, right? Because they're very different if you want to win versus if you want to simply uh, learn, right? I think there's a little bit different there. When we look at like Shakespeare and you read something like that, we don't know or think that that's how everyone talked to each other at the time. It is in itself poetry, right? But reading that is a window into hundreds of years ago about how people used to think or communicate. And we know that the linguistic structures and word choices absolutely change and evolve. And I think those changes and evolutions come via pressures of new assimilations of cultures and movement of people going from, I don't know, historical areas to new environments. And as they transition into these new environments and you're combining and meshing different cultures and different pieces of information along with new experienced stories, the words used adopt new definitions and we are using them to this day in contexts that were not applicable a decade ago, a hundred years ago. And I think even now in a very micro context in the span of a couple of years, especially as new generations, like the Gen Z generations coming out, they have vocabulary that they use to communicate to each other that to us, not far removed from Gen Z sounds bizarre, confusing, things that we don't normally use to talk to each other. And I'm sure we did the exact same thing to the greater millennial generation right before us. And then span it over decades when you look at people born before 1940. So our grandparents, they had ways of talking and speaking to each other that not only incorporated into their beliefs and the way they communicate stories, but also we could use the exact same word in a different context or definition, which is bizarre when you think about that's literally the way that we propagate history. Well, are we even agreed upon the mutual trade of ideas? As in, is the trading of ideas actually a standard? Is there any standard to how we are treating ideas here? And, and I think this is probably a problem because we don't have currency ascribed to our thoughts. Right, it's impossible really to to really value thoughts because you never know how a thought manifests into action and action into some tangible good or product or resource or service, and so there's always this this dispute as to what is the value of what I'm saying relative to the value the person's telling me, and when we're looking at history, this is where history I think becomes manipulated into this this complex fabric of stories of some validity and some absolute not validity and then you know actual truth like tangible events that actually took place and it's like this this constant balance depending on i would say a one-sided exchange right and and so 
when when communication is being attempted, I think there has to be at least a development of a two-sided, you know, debacle, at least some pursuit towards that, to where both individuals are, are somewhat understanding the perspective so that the jargonization, the morphing of the jargonization that they're using isn't actually barriering them to understanding uh, actual interpretation of an in- individual. Instead, it's, you know, more like a, a very, you know, uh, inference that is just 10% true, right? So I'm curious in your experience with learning and studying Chinese and Mandarin for so long, do you think that this factor kind of hinges or depends on the medium in which you communicate stories? Because in English or at least Latin languages, we have letters and characters. Mm-hmm. And what you just said makes me think of the quality of stories from hieroglyphics in right. Egyptian. That's a very, very, very good point because when it comes to a pictographic language, there's, there's, there is an abstraction, like when we look at English, there's an abstraction built into the letter itself. The letter A doesn't actually have any meaning other than that, which is then placed adjacent to other letters, and then it becomes a word. But when it comes to Chinese, every letter has another abstracted meaning derived in, into it. It's embedded into it. So when I look at a character like Tian, it's, it means field. Right. And I see it. It's a little plot. It's a little square. You can imagine like a little two by two square matrix. Right. And it has a little bounding square around it. And so when I look at it, I, I see a field and I already have somewhat a a uh, reduced bias associated with the meaning of the word. And, and to some level, this could be a really great tactic or a very bad tactic for changing or adapting a society. So with the evolution of different colloquial appropriations of words, you can have a society evolve at a much quicker rate, perhaps, than something that has very static words and meanings. It has that flexibility in English to then adopt new meanings as is fit with technology. But because all the different hieroglyphical understandings are are, are built 2,000 years ago, a lot of the ways that those were depicted used old technology. Like another character, it's a radical, it's called Dao. It's a, it's a knife and, and it's used all across agricultural types of meanings and characters. But we don't use knives anymore in like agriculture, right? We use all these different types of technology. And so, you know, those meanings have degraded and perhaps held them back from unlocking newer meanings in the technological field. And maybe you could also make the argument that this is why people are gravitating towards English for science, why everyone in academia necessarily nowadays has some grappling with English. It's because I think of the rate in which these terminologies can be adopted, adapted, and changed by industry even. Different words in an academic sector will have a very specific meaning than, you know, if you go from like biology to history or you go to economics, you'll you'll have like the word like increase or like uh, you'll have like progression and they'll, they'll mean different things, even though like the basic understanding is the same. It's just like, well, it's the context that drives it. The promise to end suffering for an individual can also be self-imposed, as in, my suffering could be that I am not helping people alleviate suffering. It's kind right? of existential. Right. And, and so in that process, you are then imposing your own desire to alleviate suffering on an individual, when in reality, there was never suffering in the individual in the way that you wanted to help them. And I think this is where it comes to be a bunch of hypocrisy in that, are you actually helping someone or is it your own selfish greed to help because it gives you a sense of fulfillment relative to the divine worship of your God? 
your God says this, but again, there is a belief system inside you that is telling you to do this and imposing your desires of enacting your belief system on another individual. And so at some level, I would say mm. this, the suffering should come from within that you're trying to cure. Don't necessarily worry about other people's suffering because you don't know the nature of their suffering. You never will. And the suffering then of yourself and not being able to recognize that is something that you have to remedy on your own individual level. Is God a necessity to really understand yourself and your own conscious mechanism? Is that helpful? Is it helpful at that lens? And I think that that's where my mind starts to go off on this full idea of, of what you said, where answering the question of, is a God helpful makes me break it down into the spiritual aspect of it, where there's people who refer to themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And then the delineation between loving or embracing a God versus the religion as a whole, because I think those are actually separate where the stories and lessons that you can learn from say the different religious texts can be very, very helpful and beneficial as you look to reflect upon your life in the hidden stories within these. There are deep analyses on these, which are, are fascinating just as, as different types of philosophies. But when I think about a religion or even embracing a God, it makes me try and understand the necessity of it. And while going through the necessity that that fundamental question is, is religion the mind's answer to trying to understand itself, I think is what's most interesting to me. And the reason I ask that is because when we consider our consciousness as a species and as an individual versus the other existing living creatures of the earth that do not have consciousness, but share so much similar DNA to us, is this the mind's way of answering the question of its own existence? It is so out of the scope of the own of its own creative box that we are in, that it must create a metaphysical answer outside of the realm of reality that we embrace to our, our personality and our evolution as a way to communicate and partner with another conscious being on this, on this terminology. Do we have to have a metaphysical connection in order to embrace our own consciousness and say, say for, the thought experiment's sake, you had the ability to control this evolution or at least imagine what it would look like. I would think that it's going to be very biometric, like our biometric evolution, as we continue to combine bioprosthetics and different types of cybernetics. So if we had different types of cybernetics in our evolution as we go forward, it will hand in hand dictate the types of, of socioeconomic people and cultures that have accessibility to these say that we have the ability to give someone a chip in their brain or an addition to their, their musculoskeletal structure that made them stronger and faster or able to perceive words much faster. So there was a whole group, a whole population of people that were, were, were categorized into a new structure of culture, the, the bio integrated society biocasts exactly exactly that could perceive words say twice as fast as the rest of us so you have a whole groups of people going around speed talking so fast that people who don't have these augmentations are able to understand what they're talking about therefore these new biocasts develop and how people are 
developing in careers or in societies. And then you have people with and without these, these capabilities and these biocasts as technology continues to evolve with us. We are evolving with technology as a species, which is wild. The reason why this is important is as we start to reflect back on how we got to where we are today in this certainly uncertain world, continually changing, the only way we are able to predict or try and predict forward is by understanding how we got here in the first place. Yes. Understanding is a form of communication, though. It's a form of interaction. To evolve, one might say, is to communicate. Because in the process of communicating, you need some kind of physical substrate. In this case, maybe it's air that we're talking to each other with, right? We're, we're basically vibrating the uh, atoms, the nitrogen atoms, the oxygen atoms in the air in order to, well, each one of these atoms is interacting in order to communicate something. And we just call it communication. But in reality, there is a gravitational constraint to the idea of communication in and of itself. What is the rate of communication? What is the rate that I can interact with my individuals? When I have a thought, for example, and then when I say it, right, you're basically learning about what I'm communicating in a past tense. When I say something, I'm thinking it, but then I say it and the time it actually takes for those molecules to interact and actually receive to your ear is at a delay. What I am thinking, my present reality is never going to be your present reality. You live in the past of my present reality so long as I choose to communicate it. Honestly, that in itself kind of blows my mind. And it's such a simple task. Of course, you can choose to be who you want. You can choose to express yourself however you want. But do you, I think, do you really understand how rare that is to be able to express yourself is, is your freedom to think and your ability to think and to innovate yourself to literally innovate your own ideas and then express them and manifest them in the way you interact with the rest of the world. And I want to drop a question and see, see where we can go with it. But how do we decide whether or not, you know, when you meet someone or, or approach a conversation or a situation, what's real with, with other people's masks? as you decide what you want your own to be. And then you go out into communities and society and you see that you see the masks that people wear, right? There's, there's organizations like, like bankers or like tech bros, right? They have a very predictable mask, like the way they dress and the way they communicate and what they like to do. It is a niche community, but what if like a, a reactor products come in and they are catalyzed based off the masks that people wear as an entity, and then they come out. What if no one in that group actually likes any of those masks, but those are the masks that exist as an entity in that group? So as you join the tech community, you're like, why does everyone here wear Allbirds? None of us actually like them. I'm not saying that like they're, front, they're nice shoes, but that was just an example. <laughs> right. Like as an example, why do we all wear purple flannels? No one actually likes these. Well, we're in tech. We wear purple flannels. But why? Does anyone actually like wearing these? Well, that's that's just the mask. That's the that's what we wear in tech. Right? How do you know what's real? What are, what do people actually like versus when are they actually just trying to assimilate? But now there are 
things changing and a greater population of people have new styles and new ways of expressing themselves. And maybe that's, maybe that's the rigidness of past cultures that are slowly fading away. Just like we had the rigidness of an education system. And then once you see people coming out of that, they can, they can flower, they can grow into who they would like to, to, to express themselves as to fit into a community that they have relationship with. Mm -hmm. And really there's one central dichotomy that I want to present from what you just said. And that the people that want to fit into their surrounding community, that's great. That's great. But that doesn't necessarily mean you need to put on the hive mind mask to do that. And I think there, there's that dichotomy there. There is the hive mind mask, and then there's the individual's mask. And I think some people have forgotten that people can actually understand their own risk when saying whatever the hell they want to say, right? And, and it might affect you in a specific way. It might have a big problem with you. That's okay, because you can also have a conversation and figure out where we can mitigate the risk and of the conflict itself. And I think the problem is, that it's tough to figure out a common moral good as to what are the things that we should say as a society. And, and it's an extremely slippery slope to even put in any restrictions on what mask that we choose to wear. Because, well, then in the process, you might actually bias it based on the current events of time and political environment that's going on right now. If you restrict things relative to the contextual cues of today, well, how is the contextual cues of today going to morph into the contextual cues of the future? And then when, what happens if we put ourselves into a future point where we're not allowed to have a public dialogue about a very necessary feature of the future because we've restricted ourselves based on the context cues of the present? The idea is that, okay, you want, let's just say, let's take it simple. Everyone needs an HR. Everyone needs a human resources manager, right? So say you're looking, getting a new HR to your team, right? And really trying to optimize how they're managing the workforce and so forth. But you find some really good talent out there, but they just don't fit the cultural and values of your company, right? And this is a huge thing. If you, if you want to do well in your company, you have to, at some level, enjoy the people you're working with, right? And so instead of actually trying to find the perfect HR with the right skill set and the right cultural balance, what you can do is then outsource to an HR com company. And all you're really getting is the talent. You don't have to worry about the culture. You don't have to worry about how they nestle into your company. I mean, they'll be working with your company, but the culture itself is separated into this, you know, what, what I would call an HR 100 person company that is highly optimized and has other companies that they work for. And they provide HR solutions to probably another set of 10 to 100 companies, right? Depending on the scale of that outsourcing model. And so, I mean, the whole, the whole thing here is that you're able to isolate one thing that you want for your company and that's skill set, right? When you're outsourcing. And I think that's such a valuable thing because you don't necessarily need to worry about the, the character and its symbiotic relationship with the other coworkers at that high detail level, right? And, and I think, you know, this, this kind of brings into what we, why we're calling this platform capitalism, because every single business model then would function as a platform that can be used by other companies, right? And that's the whole thing. It's, it's that, okay, well, we need this specific niche sector figured out. And since we're hyper-specializing to this niche thing, we have 100 people devoted to this one niche thing. Let's see if we can use other companies to kind of just bounce ideas on and actually grow a whole more diverse sector. 
without having to really engage in getting new talent for the hyper-specialization, collaborating with them and managing them within a single company entity. I've never heard of sleep hygiene be used before, but I think that's a really good term to kind of label it as because it is unbelievably important how much sleep can impact your life and having a consistent sleep schedule will will set a foundation and give you a runway to address so many other problems or at least practices and habits in your life. And I think another interesting point that you started to build on was should you or could you identify one habit or practice that you're trying to break or at least change without addressing this other fundamental landscape in your in your environment and in your life. So you have all these categories of how you live and how you operate. And I think breaking it down into a proper diet, a good sleep habit, you know, healthy practices and a gr- gratitude mentality toward the things that people have in their life. And then, you know, there's those positive attributes, but there's also the negative ones where you say, you know, I, I kind of have a, a smoking problem or, you know, drinking, or I don't address my sleep as, as the way I'd like to. Can you isolate one of those and bring that level down without actively addressing the other levels and bringing them up? And I think that's a good kind of basis to approach this Eastern versus Western approach into medicine, where I think the Western approach is more focused on medicating the isolated compartment, as opposed to the Eastern approach, which is more holistic and addressing your fundamental way of living and how you can create kind of an equilibrium with how you approach your lifestyle as a whole. Yeah, I think this is the key here. Uh, Neuroplasticity, I think, is a huge relationship to time as well. I mean, neuroplasticity at a basic level is just developing new connections, making new associations from point A to point B in the brain. Maybe it's actually point A to point Z. Who knows, right? It's just new associations, and they're very, very minute and subtle variations in associations there. And when you're engaging with neuroplasticity, you're basically engaging with uncomfortable feelings. You're, you're, you're engaging with a certain uncertainty. As, as we call it on our podcast. And, and, and I think this is where it really comes down to why this podcast is named this is because we are certain about uncertainty coming into our lives and changing our understanding of time. And I think that is the key to really understanding and giving yourself control in what you choose to do in your life. And I think that's, that's, that's very, very important. Absolutely. I think paying attention to why you are the way you are, how you feel, not just about happiness or sadness or accomplishment going through the day, but actually taking the the time to reflect on what the day felt like. And I think one of the base level practices people encourage you to do is to journal about it. At 1.45 every single day, I get tired. I get Mm -hmm. this like brain fog. And I know that right when I wake up from like 7 a.m. until like noon almost, like right before lunch, I am so sharp. I'm so sharp and I can sit down and just crank through like deep work problems, which I think is really cool. So Mm -hmm. what's interesting though, because what you've just identified is a gap in your cognitive span. So what's an activity you can do in your, in your gap time that actually decreases that gap time. Right. And and this is where it gets interesting. So it's like, if you have an activity for, you know, any type of behavioral change that I want to make, whatever, whatever I want to do, maybe I just want to like, you know, be more like mathematical, right? Or analytical or something for some like reason. I don't know. And, and like, what's an activity do I do to just make me more analytical? Is it, you know, going online, doing a quick math problem, 
Yeah. You know, when I'm in that kind of slump and even though I'm in a slump, I just, I get it done. And what I'll notice is a, is a massive just decrease or minimize in my gap period. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's different for every individual. So there's no like formulaic way of doing it, but I just think it's very interesting. Whenever you have those gaps, it means, Hey, there is a reaction in my body going on that I don't particularly like, and it's not particularly helpful for me. So it's like, okay, well, let's try some things in this gap time. Mm-hmm. Cause clearly what I'm doing right now in my gap time isn't working. Right. Cause I, I do too. I get these like slump periods as well. And I'm like, okay, when I'm in my slump period, it's like, I got to move. I got to go do something different. It can't be work. It can't be, it can be work, I guess, but it needs to be a different way of engaging with the material. Like if I'm on my computer, like in an Excel or, you know, or like looking at like some kind of like graphs or doing some like, you know, maths or formulas or whatever, it can't be anything like that. It has to be something very different. It has to be like, like doing piano. Or something like that, yes. right? Yep. Jumping off, doing a quick beat of piano. It has to be something kind of engaging as well, though. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like just something to just speak in a different language all of a sudden.